Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Zola Warriors, welcome back. If you're new here, I want to say a special thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention and lending us your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that of course is your time. We're going to take good care of it today. Today's entrepreneur is going to give us a bit of a chemistry lesson. Karen Calvino has more than seven years of experience innovating in something I didn't even know was a thing, a word rather, catalysis. Raise your hand if you know what catalysis is. That makes you smarter than me. Well, catalysis is the area where Karen has been innovating for converting CO2 to value added chemicals. What kinds of chemicals you might say? Well, monomers, those things that make up the building blocks of the plastics in your life, the very structures that give us our first world industrialized society. She specializes specifically in understanding reaction mechanisms at the surface of the catalysts and how to translate that knowledge into material properties. And if all that sounds really complex, don't you worry. We break it down into understandable, sensible language. You know, Karin really is contributing to the roadmap for accelerating our clean energy future. And the work that she and her team are doing at Renew CO2 is giving me hope that we are going to innovate our way out of this climate crisis. Stick around. We talk about catalysis and many other exciting aspects of carbon capture and reutilization in today's episode. I hope that you've subscribed to the show because that's going to ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this with folks on the front lines of climate action, just like Karen. We've got more than 550 such episodes with clean energy founders and leaders and their startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. It's genuinely a pleasure to have Karen Calvino on the show today. She is the co-founder and CTO of a company I've recently come to understand a little bit better, and you will today as well. That company, Renew CO2, is re-envisioning how catalysts can transform the carbon sector. Karin, welcome to Suncast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Karin, I know a lot of inquisitive minds out there just clicked through because they're wondering, what does it mean to rewrite the chemistry uh, industry? And how can chemicals generally help us recapture the the carbon that otherwise would be out, including the world. Uh, I'd like for you at, at like a 30,000 foot level to just introduce us to the problem that you have created your business, Renew CO2, to solve as though you're talking to a room full of elementary schools, children. Awesome. So uh, right now to make the chemicals that we use uh, for house cleaners, for detergents, clothing, just to name a few, uh, traditionally, uh, the chemical companies will take oil, gas, coal, uh, heat it up under pressure, sometimes with hydrogen, sometimes with oxygen, 
And from a series of pressure uh, of processes that require um, pressure change, temperature change, we, we will get those products mixed in a soup. That soup needs to be heat up, uh, heated up again to separate the things that we need with the purity we need. Um, and the bottom line is that we spend a lot of energy doing that. And both the uh, carbon input and the heat input generate a lot of CO2. So that was fine and 80 years ago. CO2 is not really toxic or anything. So we were just emitting it as a byproduct. And as everyone knows, that's not true anymore. Uh, it became very hot and we need to scale back on CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. um, but we still need all of the products that come from those processes. Yeah. Uh, so the challenge is to make them in a different way. Um, and just to have a sense of the scale of the emissions that come from making chemicals, that corresponds to 15% of the global industrial emissions. So it's significant and it's worth working on. Help me understand where the 15% comes from. 15% of global industrial emissions result from petrochemical processing or just general plastics processing or like put, put it in a box for me in terms of the kinds of uh, industrial processes that produce this 15%? The production of plastics uh, are 20% are of that. So I presume then this is also, it, it even includes things like rubber and steel. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And steel and cement are a big portion of that. So uh, there are companies solving those problems as well. Okay. I think I'm beginning to understand the, the problem and the scale of the problem. 15% of global industrial emissions resulting from chemical processes generally. But you don't attack all of the chemical processes, steel, cement, maybe not even rubber. But why don't you introduce us for a moment to Renew COT? Why is the business that you've created, along with your co-founders, going to solve this problem of global industrial CO2 emissions from the chemical processing industry? Right. So we tackle plastics uh, and plastics are 20% uh, of those emissions uh, in the chemical industry. So... Uh, really, what we're uh, we can think of these problems in two buckets. One of them is where is the carbon coming from? So uh, what we use as the carbon source is CO2. So we can couple with existing processes and take the CO2 that comes out of those processes and use them uh, to make chemicals. The other bucket is where is the energy coming from? So we use electrochemistry as the core of the process, which means we can use electricity to drive the reactions instead of heat. If, if you think about how heat uh, really catalyzes, it really makes the reaction go faster. It does it so by creating random collisions. And those are very specific. So you have to spend a lot of, uh, a lot of time to separate the products after a lot of energy. Um, and when we use electricity, we can bump up the energy to a specific, well-defined orbital level. Um, and that really helps us to get the product that we need and nothing else. Um, so we spend less energy to drive the process overall. We leverage the electrical field to create the reactivity that we need. And we can use renewable electricity to drive those chemical reactions instead of natural gas. Yeah. So that helps a lot in, uh, in lowering the emissions. 
one critical factor, though, is that the electricity for this shipment uh, for this to be really carbon neutral, the electricity has to come from renewables. And that's why I think this connects really well with your audience. Yeah, because me too. We, we need that solar to, to get the these processes to run. Indeed. I really appreciate that within the first five minutes, you connected it right back to the primary audience here who are thinking themselves, great, how does my solar plant or my solar company uh, help this uh, this broader process of decarbonizing the 20% of the chemical processing industry, which is pretty cool. But one thing I want to come back to, and that'll sound familiar for listeners who, especially those who've listened to our Green Hydrogen series, is this idea of electrolysis. You have spent a lot more time thinking about the chemistry and the processes for catalysis, as I learned today, uh, and the uh, the different mechanisms you differentiated um, how to get the carbon um, and where the energy comes from. It it sounds like to sort of I, I think what I want I need to understand is maybe a chemistry lesson and tying in electrolysis generally. What's the alternative today for catalyzing? What is it that's being catalyzed to extract the carbon in order to form other things? Where is that um, carbon alternative use today? Uh, and then break down for me the differentiation between what you said was like a thermal option and electrolysis, because I thought that electrolysis was thermal, but I just want to make sure I'm really clear on how, where, how this all comes together so that a solar developer listening can think, should I, would I think about coupling with this kind of a technology versus um, uh, some other uh, offtake for like green electrons, right? And that's kind of where I want to bucket it for those who are thinking just purely from a developing renewable energy perspective. And a lot of listeners are in different sectors uh, and are just genuinely curious. So uh, I, I'm going to ask you just simplify it for me. A chemistry lesson on catalysis as it relates to what you're trying to uh, solve and how electrolysis fits in there. Right. Uh, So normally chemical catalysis uh, relies on a surface, bringing the things that you can react together and lowering the activation energy for those those things to react. Um, And we rely on a thermal input to uh, get those things to collide with the catalyst um, and and get the the reaction to go. In electrolysis, the catalyst is uh, is getting the, it's not being heated up. Uh, The mixture is not being heated up. We uh, are just applying a potential to drive that reaction. So we are attracting the reactants to the surface and we are tuning the surface energy levels uh, bound to the reactor, the reactant to drive that reaction faster. Uh, now, the concept of doing electrolysis on CO2 is not new. That has been done for more than 30 years. Um, and the difference is that we came up with a catalyst that can do that with a, a really small energy input and very specifically to make uh, products that have a lot of value. Um, so uh, most of the first products that were uh, that were developed were carbon monoxide uh, and methane, so ethylene, which are gases. And those gases uh, are not used usually as a final uh, product. They're used as reaction uh, reaction intermediates. They're feedstocks for other products, which means that you cannot just install the CO2 electrolysis, you have to install an entire chemical plant after that to use the product. 
what we're doing is producing liquid products that are monomers and can be shipped anywhere. Um, so they're inert and really make that that's simple. You're taking emissions to a product that's liquid and you can ship that away. Um, you don't have to build an entire train after that. There's a place where the gas molecules make sense. Uh, and that's usually in, inside of a chemical complex, but nowhere else. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what we the, what we offer is the opportunity to take this process somewhere else. Gotcha. So give me an example. I'm going to come back to another word in a second that you've used just to, to, to define it better for listeners. So, but give me an example of a, a, a client who has expressed interest in uh, utilizing the output of this new catalyst process. One of the companies we're working with is Volkswagen. Um, they really want to get monomers that are carbon negative into the car seats, carpets, and things like that. Because they realized most of the emissions that are in their cars come from the steel and from the polymers that are used to, to manufacture it. So once you moved towards electrical cars and you're not emitting CO2 constantly on uh, driving around, you also have the emissions coming in the, the production of the material. And they're getting rid of that. Another company that... Uh, a few other sectors where where we have received a lot of interest are in the chemical companies themselves, um, such as Shell, um, Equate, for example, um, and the uh, PT companies. So that and PT companies are making uh, polyester, they're making packaging, things like that. So they also have CO2 emissions. They need the monomers that we, we make. Uh, and this makes sense coupled with their process. Got it. So you've used this term a couple of times, a few times, that I think deserves a, a few moments here to, um, to clarify. In our daily lives, we are probably more familiar with a similar word, polymer, although I would bet nine out of 10 people can't even define polymer, but Help me understand what monomer means. Because for me, I have to admit, with a deep English sort of lexicon, I can intuit what I think it is, but I've never really heard the word used in a sentence. Okay. So uh, basically, uh, plastic yeah. is a polymer, mm -hmm. and a polymer is made out of monomers. So mm -hmm. before, before it becomes a, uh, the material that you see, it is generally a smaller molecule and it needs to be bound together before it becomes the solid that you see around. So before we dive into the technology and your background a little bit, I'd love to pique folks' interest around some of the milestones and accomplishments you've achieved as a relatively young company. You recently um, took on a seed round of funding. I feel like you've probably reached product market fit, but I'll let you define that. And uh, I'm wondering about the, the path to commercialization. So tell me a bit about how you funded your R&D and sort of some of the milestones you've achieved so far. Right. So uh, my co-founders and myself invented this technology at Rutgers University. And we did, we spun out the company and uh, did that with funding prominently from DOE grants, um, also from NSF uh, and NASA. So uh, NASA. we, yes. <laughs> we just drop that one in there. <laughs> uh, so, uh, not, do you want me to go into that? Sure. 
<laughs> so uh, the uh, TESA funding was, uh, was actually the very first one. Um, we were able to propose a pathway to make sugars from CO2 in Mars because the atmosphere on Mars is 97% CO2. And if you can make sugar from that, you can feed uh, uh, bioreactors to make all sorts of, uh, of uh, fun materials. Yeah, and Nabisco so, would set up a plant there immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really what we did was starting with the electrolysis process and thinking of what would we do next to make sugars. And we can do make the... Uh, uh, Sugar is a molecule with six carbons, and we get with our um, one of our catalysts, we can get to uh, a molecule that has three carbons, uh, and uh, that only requires two processes to get to sugar. So we won uh, an award there, uh, and it was a, a really fun project to take on. We ended up focusing the company more on the processes that we can do on earth with plastics because they have a lot more commercial value than sugar. Um, but it is something that is, uh, you know, future R and D. Well, uh, Hey, the new world was founded on the commercial value of sugar. So I don't think we can underestimate the, the commercial possibilities when you've discovered a way to extract sugar from a new world. Just saying it's uh it's a tried and true uh, industrial expansion process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So b b most of the other funding uh, comes from, uh, comes from uh, based on the idea of converting CO2 emissions on earth and yeah. solving our climate, climate problem. Mm. Um, another big chunk of funding comes from the breakthrough energy fellowship, uh, which is also non-dilutive uh, in um, overall, we uh, ended up raising $8 million in non-dilutive funding. Mm -hmm. There are uh, six, more than 60 innovators right now in the program um, in doing all sorts of things that will help with climate change from the carbon sector to the hydrogen sector to the solar and wind sector. And yeah. uh, it's just an amazing community. I have to imagine there's a lot of guidance you are spinning a product out, an IP that you've created out of a university, which itself uh, we've gone through here on the show a couple of times is often an onerous process, but you also are receiving uh, great advice on how to leverage, as universities are great at, non-dilutive capital, government labs, et cetera. Talk to me about that process as a young founder of raising, I mean, $8 million is not a trivial sum of money. Uh, it's you know, 4X your seed round. So it seems to me like you were able to gain a pretty healthy runway. I'd like to hear about your thought process with your with your co-founders and how how long into it you began to realize, okay, well, this this gravy train is going to run out. We need to go raise additional capital. It's probably going to be venture. Right. So coming from academia, we were always writing grant proposals. So we knew how to do that to start with, right? Uh, and it was one of the great pieces of training for my PhD program that was super, super crucial for, uh, for getting uh, a head start with, on the process and getting more proof points, getting everything up and running. My first job uh, out of grad school was uh, as a fellow at the Chain Reaction Innovations Fellowship at Argonne National Lab. 
DOE funded program and got to work for two years at the National Lab on the problems for the startup uh, with the scientists from Argonne collaborating to solve challenges using equipment there, uh, using the labs there. So it's a super amazing head start, right? You can't outfit a lab like a national lab. It's so capital intensive and equipment intensive. Yeah. So uh, that was an amazing head start. The Break for Energy Fellowship helped a lot uh, in uh, helping us outfit our own labs and bringing more uh, engineers in. The thing with government grants is that they run on a timescale that's very long. Yeah. So it's a year-long program in general with step-by-step milestone. And that's super useful, but there's a pace limitation there. Mm. And between funding cycles, you take sometimes 10 months to get an approval of a new grant. Uh, And that's just not the pace at which we uh, can solve the carbon problem. Yeah. So that's when we realized we needed to get VC funding as well. Yeah. So um, that that's when we got to meet ETV. They're mm-hmm. amazing folks. ETV is Energy Transition Ventures. Mm-hmm. Energy Transition Ventures, uh, fund out of uh, Houston. Mm-hmm. They have amazing experience in solar, in the chemical industry, in electrolysis. And they are just in that ecosystem that needs so hard to decarbonize. So they come with a lot of expertise, a lot of experience, and it's been amazing just the amount of support that we got from them. And you've got someone who understands, who has been in Neil, who has been at the helm, sort of in the the decision room at Shell Ventures, understands the petrochemical industry and their struggles and opportunities. Uh, Craig, who has spent a lot of time in the solar industry and understands the clean energy uh, opportunity to couple with your technology. I'm curious, as I understand it, ETV led the seed round. Uh, I don't know how much you can disclose, but I'd love to hear uh, how much you raised in the seed round and who else came alongside Craig and uh, Neil and ETV for that seed round. It was uh, only ETV. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we raised $2 million from them. Um, so th- this has been amazing in uh, really letting us, uh, talk, for example, take care of the IP strategy. Okay. Which uh, a lot, I, I don't know if everyone knows this at this point, but uh, government grants don't allow us to spend a lot of money on IP. They got a little better on it. So now they. Uh, uh, Meaning to spend on lawyers to protect the IP. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So now they sometimes let us. Uh, spend a small portion of funding on that, but it's not nearly enough for, yeah, uh, for the amount, the amount of money that IP costs. Um, but uh, it's not only about the funding and what, and what it, it lets us do faster, but also about the mindset that comes from Neil and Craig. So I, uh, I was going to ask, you know, besides getting you on Suncast, what have they done to support your growth? And you you mentioned something that it wasn't really apparent to me that the IP strategy is something that is um, is not able you're not able to focus on, especially mm-hmm. as a CTO who is focused um, early on getting the technology out of the lab and into into working commercial commercialization uh, pathway. Uh, is there anything else that you, comes to top of mind for you that partnering outside of the traditional pathway of government funding and non dilutive capital partnering with 
uh, venture has uh, opened Renew CO2 up to? Yes. Uh, so one of the things that they really helped us with was getting experts to help us on the commercialization path. For example, one of the things that we need to do is make a lot of catalysts for uh, our pilots and things like that. Um, so uh, they introduced us to someone that was really good at that and was retired from Shell. And we get to work with him as a consultant um, every week. Uh, and he gets to direct uh, our, uh, our process and teach us how to do that really bring the expertise in um, and uh, having the, the flexibility to do that. And not only the flexibility, but the contacts. Uh, Neil and Craig are great at making introductions to experts uh, and bring them into to the company. So that has been fantastic. What was the process like for you and your co-founders after you decided we're definitely going to need to raise some venture funding in finding and selecting ETV among the many. You are a breakthrough venture fellow for, for goodness sake. Like you definitely have the opportunity to be introduced to many, many different kinds of companies. Could you talk a bit about the process of narrowing it down and deciding on ETV? Yeah, so we actually hadn't received funding yet from Breakthrough. Um, it was in the process, but we hadn't, we hadn't closed it. So it was just a possibility. We had some inbound interest from uh, other funds, and we talked to, to a lot of people, but there's uh, there's just this, a passion and a speed to ETV's process. I love that you that, avoided the word chemistry. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, but, but but there was just such a, a, a an instant connection, and them seeing the vision yeah. that uh, sold us on them. Um, but we found them through a Creamtown Labs event. Oh, so right. our COO was there and Neil was speaking and uh, said some interesting things. So our COO followed up on a code email, reached out about three times until Neil decided to respond. Very Neil-like. Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, the fact that you got him to respond is itself like a huge win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I know that I sh that the best way of getting him is to give him a call and not really email him when you can get his number. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> we won't give away all Neil's secrets, but it's uh, so you met him at a Greentown Labs event, or rather, you discovered ETV at a Greentown Labs event, and then cold emailed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Three emails to get him to respond, and it worked out. Uh, but our CEO has a, a talent for spotting really great people that we should work with. And so when he insists on something, it's because it's worth it. He knew. Wow. So who's the, what's his name? It's Peter Shepard. He's amazing. Um, he spent his entire life in chemical companies. Yeah. He ran a startup, Novomer, as the chief business officer. He was able to uh, help, help Novomer transition uh, on a merger and acquisition uh, to Saudi Aramco. He was the president of the specialty polymers there for a while. And when he was coming off of that job, we were able to snag him first as a consultant wow. and then convince him to come full time. On is he a Rutgers alum? No, uh, he is um, an experienced executive from the Boston area. Mm. Are you in Boston? No, <laughs> we are in New Jersey. Uh, we randomly met him uh, at the Clean Tech Open. He was a judge 
And he asked really amazing questions uh, when we were uh, doing our pitches. And we had a follow-on conversation. He knew everything about CO2 conversion because Novomer was taking CO2 into polymers, uh, adhesives, and we just connected. I love these kinds of discussions because the process of building a team on the outside looks like a black box. It looks like at times an old boys club, you pull people together from a past life, from a past job, but it's, it, every entrepreneur I meet follows a different path. And this is a great example of being open and available to what the universe is bringing into your, you know, into your uh, purview. The idea that a judge at the clean tech open was not only someone who became a coach and counselor and consultant, but then your COO. And then I happened to identify Neil as a prospective investor. I mean, that pathway is not one that you ever could have forecast, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I mm, love it. Well, there are many things about your, uh, I would say your professional career that probably wouldn't have been able to be forecast. Let's talk a bit about where you're from and and how you came to study at Rutgers. Talk a bit about the your early life growing up in Brazil. What was the conversation like for you as a young person around the dinner table? I'm really curious, was it a close-knit family? What part of Brazil do you originate from? Uh, and were there any early signs for you of uh, either clear entrepreneurship in your family or sort of these entrepreneurial tendencies that would have pushed you out of like the traditional corporate pathway? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm from the countryside of Brazil uh, in the South. Where specifically? A lot of listeners are from Latin America. All right. Uh, so I'm from Santa Catarina and my mother it was a nurse. My dad was a mechanical in uh, the chemical industry. So I grew up in a farm uh, Was a, uh, and really was able to do everything from scratch with my parents bread, yogurt. Um, so I walked into a supermarket and I knew where everything came from. And because my dad was in the chemical industry, those things were more or less the same to me, big pans, big pots, and we made things there. Wow. So it was kind of intuitive. And I was a little bit of a nerd, um, <laughs> and spent a lot of time reading and doing experiments because my parents uh, both worked full-time. I had a lot of freedom to do that. And uh, really, sometimes they didn't know where I was. That was before every kid had a cell phone. And I was usually at the library reading something. So it was really just having that time to to build that curiosity and that instinct of learning and getting the pleasure of learning something new and doing something new and using that. So. You ask a really good question about how the conversation was at the dinner table. And I remember my mom coming back from uh, her work as a nurse and she worked in a neighborhood unit. So she knew what everyone was going through in their uh, most vulnerable moments. And she would come home and say, well, our neighbor, five houses down, I went through an accident and um, he needs help with a bandage. Uh, can we go there, there after dinner? You keep them company and I'll go, uh, I'll go take care of him. And I would do that with my mom a lot. So the thing that I learned with that was to always focus on the uh, ways we can serve 
and uh, be part of the community by 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 really helping and caring for everyone around us. And that is, she never talked about the big value of caring, but she showed that every day. And um, what this did to me is really uh, teaching the value of just doing the small things and they become the big things. So to me, this work of building a company is a series of small, actionable things. Um, we connect that to the vision, but we bring it back to the tasks on the to-do list today, every single moment. It's not, it's not abstract, it's concrete and it's intuitive and it's just electrons and atoms. It's matter, it's not abstract at all. Your wisdom uh, belies a much older entrepreneur. I think that was really beautifully stated. And uh, I just want to pause a moment and honor the wisdom that was passed along by your mother and the slower pace of life that allowed you as a child to be observant, to internalize these lessons. I mean, what a wonderful life lesson, the value of doing small things. And it's, it's akin to the adage, how you do anything is how you do everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The way you show up in uh, your to-do list is the same as the way you show up in your neighborhood or community or in your, 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 your faith community or in your job or in your bedtime routine. It is, and that affects our health. It affects our ability to contribute and change the world. And change the world is one of the things that uh, we have capacity for in climate tech investing. It's one of the things that the folks at ETVC and you and your co-founders and the work that you're doing. So I just wanted to uh, reciprocate that. I hope that your parents can appreciate the fundamental foundation that was laid for you that is now taking root in the possibility of changing the way the way the chemical industry works and really catalyzing a different uh, a different pathway for our climate future. That's beautiful. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, 
patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Who would you say beyond your parents served as heroes for you growing up? I had two very good friends who were over, over 60 and they were sisters. And one of them was an amazing manager. She was a nurse, but she was running a team uh, and they really had such a good relationship and it was, she knew everything about them. Uh, she would check in about their, uh, their life. She would be flexible uh, and they would be very, she had a charisma and, uh, and they would have a devotion because of that. So really that care that she showed for them was reflected in a lot of dedication from them to their work. Ah, the, so the teammates, not just the patients. Yes, the teammates. Uh-huh. Uh, she uh, she most directly dealt with her team and not with the patients. But and I could see that that relationship was super special. And her sister was a big reader, and she was into the natural sciences. And I spent a lot of time with those two friends. Um, it was a little odd because I was a kid and they were a little older, but. We had so many great conversations and we walked on the beach and we did crossword puzzles and we talked about science and about work and uh, about life. It was amazing. Uh, so they were huge role models. I have to ask for those who aren't familiar with Santa Catarina, it's the state famously home of Florianópolis, uh, one of the most beautiful uh, places in Brazil, in my opinion. And you just said beach. So I have to ask how close to Florianópolis were you? I was about... Two hours uh, away from North, that. South? North. North. Okay. So closer to Curitiba. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so nice. I uh, ended up go- going to college in Curitiba. And that's uh, where I actually met those friends. I, um, These college, older ladies. These older ladies. Oh, cool. Uh, and they were amazing role models. That's cool. And for those who also are unfamiliar, and I find it interesting because having worked in, and spent a lot of time in Latin America, Curitiba is not just for Brazil, but globally, one of the most forward-thinking cities in the world. Having put a lot of thought into city planning, probably one of the most progressive bus routing uh, projects in the history of like city urban transit. I can only imagine like, you know, you going to college there, it is a, uh, it's just a, it's a different, it's a, it, it, it is such a wonderful experience. I would, I, I really wanted to go and visit Curitiba I could do a whole other podcast with you just talking about Brazil. So we won't, we won't dig too far back uh, in that. But I'm curious where you began to really realize, okay, chemistry is a direction I want to head. And specifically, at what point in that journey did the idea of using chemistry for carbon extraction form, like sort of cat, not catalyze, but, but become really formed in, in as, as a thought process for you? 
So in Curitiba is an amazing place, as you were saying. Yeah. Really progressive on uh, transport. Uh, we not only use a lot of public transportation, but uh, we also have the buses running with biodiesel. So it, it, it's uh, pretty clean. Um, we also have more than 60% of all trash being recycled. Um, so it's it's a very sustainable place. And I ended up living in a neighborhood that was close to the chemical companies because of my dad's job. I got to see that even though the city was pretty great, the neighborhood I was in had all of the effects of the, the chemical manufacturing. So it smelled terrible because of the emission, emissions from, the, from refining. I saw chemical spills in the rivers that were near my, my neighborhood. Uh, I saw that it took more than five years to clean those oil spills up. And uh, I really got a close sense for understanding how there is a lot of that there was a lot of work to be done there. And I also understood that there was nothing like oil companies are bad and uh, they're not doing better, but they could. They just didn't have better scaled options. If they had, they would. Economical and safer and better. So my passion for chemistry comes from that and for really understanding how to work on this problem of making chemicals in a better way comes from this, from seeing the effects every day and knowing that to get it to really be implemented, it doesn't only have to work in the university lab. It has to be economically viable. It has to be reliable. The products have to have the performance that everyone expects. Someone has to do that job. <laughs> and that job is one that I really like doing. So at what point in your studies, you were in Curitiba, you decided to move to the U.S. to study at Rutgers. Was that for your PhD? Yes. In Brazil, I was working in chemistry, but the different flavor of it, uh, I was really just learning the fun things um, and understanding structure of the materials and uh, how they interact with light. And when I thought about it, I wanted to direct my learning in my PhD towards making chemicals faster, better, cheaper, uh, and more sustainable. And that is only possible with catalysis. So I decided to go into that area. And when I was reading papers and trying to figure out where should I go, I ran across uh, the papers from Chuck Dismukes. And uh, he is a professor at Rutgers. He was before a professor at Princeton. And he really had a, a way of understanding how the catalysts worked uh, and relating that back to basic principles that was fascinating. So with my textbook knowledge of chemistry, I could understand, well, this makes intuitive sense of why it is reacting this way. It's not only this is the result, here's the rationale behind it. Here's the intuitive understanding of, of this. And that's the kind of way to, that I wanted to think about the problem. So I reached out to him and it was like, well, it sounds, uh, it sounds like you're a great fit. It's one thing to have the insight. I want to take my career in a direction where I can make chemicals faster, better, safer. It's another to take the time 
to find someone for whom you can be an understudy, right? This idea of apprenticeship is really important and it's way overlooked in the graduate school program process. I, I give advice mm-hmm. to anyone. People will say, oh, I want to get an MBA. And they all they really care about is having the title so that it gives them more money or getting a PhD so they can go into some sort of um, either research or academic track instead of recognizing, oh, I want to be in the top 1% of my industry. And so I'm going to go find the people who are there and I'm going to sit at their feet and I'm going to ask them as many questions as I can. And I'm going to pay for the luxury to do that. And so I have to ask, where did the intuition, instruction, guidance come from for you to be that thoughtful about who you would go work under for your for your doctorate? I think the part I didn't mention was that uh, before I decided to go to the U.S., I had a fellowship for four years uh, for the PhD from Brazil. And as part of getting that fellowship, we had to submit proposals of what exactly was the work we were going to do. And in part of crafting that proposal, I had to dig into the literature and really figure out this is what I want to do. And these are the people that do it best. Having the fellowship first and then having knowing what I was going to do and then going on to find the universities was a good process that I was directed into, which is opposite to a lot of processes where you that I see people going through, which is finding the university that has a flashy name and then applying and then thinking after what you're going to do. I wish I had had the guidance or the structure in my 20s to have been given the mentorship that I've that you and I both have been given and now and are giving others and which I gave uh, someone just yesterday, uh, which is, you know, decide what general direction you want to go and find the people who are going to most inspire you and teach and mentor you. And by hook or crook, like go work under four in on behalf of those people or those organizations. And a lot of folks in our current environment think, oh, I want to go work for a fast growth startup. Like, great. If that fast growth startup has a path to scale to be a billion dollar company, excellent. And we have a lot of those like yours in climate tech, but folks are generally lost and they don't like you seek guidance and mentorship. They just seek labels to attach to themselves that hopefully will help them stand out. If you're listening to this and you're really just thinking about what you want to do with your career, find someone that you can follow, find someone that you can learn from and who's, who you can trade time with for uh, giving your energy and your attention uh, in exchange for helping them achieve their goals. And um, that is, and do it at a macro level, you know, the way that Karin did, like actually understand an industry, not just one player in the industry, but understand how the industry itself works. With that in mind, I'd like to dig deeper on the chemical industry and understand if you as a graduate student, a doctoral student, were seeing a disconnect in the chemical industry in particular that suggested there could be improvements and define for me how you began to think uh, with Renew CO2 differently. And we've talked a bit about that in the beginning, but uh, maybe you have more specific uh, answers to that that you want to unpack. Yeah. So uh, as part of my graduate program, I got another fellowship from BASF. So I got... The- You're really good at this fellowship gig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, I-, I was very fortunate uh, to to get that, that fellowship from the catalysis group and understand how they thought about problems. So um, they did recently some amazing work. And by recently, I mean on the last 
30 years, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, on developing the catalysts that come out of um, the catalyst for cars, for the flue gas that comes out of the engine. Environmental ca- catalyst is how they, they will describe it. But just the thought process behind that. So it has to be uh, in, has to work at low temperature when the car is starting. It has to work at high temperature when the car is running. It has to uh, treat a, a, a few different compounds. For example, the gasoline that didn't burn completely. Also, the nitrous oxide that came from that burning uh, and the, the sulfur compounds um, and treat all of them at once. So uh, the structure also uh, that allows this to happen is a ceramic and it's brittle. So how do you encase that in a car that's going to go uh, over bumps? So they thought about that and they, they have something that cushions that, that structure because it has to work in the real world. It's not just the chemistry and it has to be cheap enough. So not only they, uh, it, and they have a, as the core working catalyst, platinum, palladium, those, those very expensive things. So not only do they have to um, to produce that in a way that's efficient, but also cheaply. So they recover those metals once the catalyst is used. And there's a lot of knowledge in doing that. So this, to me, shows like how, how you think about this problem. And also that you're making this at such a scale that you have uh, trucks of, uh, of the starting materials. And you have to measure this not in the, with the precision of a lab scale with the micrograms. You have to measure this in tons in truck sizes. So uh, it has to be a really resilient recipe. However, when I was really digging into their process, what I understood was that they were really good at improving thermal catalysts, but there wasn't a lot of expertise in electrochemistry at in this area there is some expertise in their headquarters and their long-term research and that was true for a lot of other uh, a lot of other big chemical companies there are some small groups that understand electrochemistry but there are huge groups that understand thermal catalysis which means their innovation is restricted mostly to that way of thinking about catalysts so when we had the innovation in the lab it wasn't enough to just have a patent and expect someone to license and work from there because there just isn't enough expertise in the chemical industry to do that. And this is one of the big reasons why we decided to start a company. We had to provide that expertise. So I usually hear what I ask, what are you doing differently in the industry? You've explained that a number of different ways. I think one of the things that we need to do is tie it back to the folks that will understand sort of the electron side of this ETV has invested in you guys. They've invested in Omium, who specifically is focused on electrolysis as well on in the hydrogen sector. How similar are the processes for companies that maybe we would recognize that are doing pyrolysis and electrolysis for hydrogen conversion and the kind of work that you're doing on the carbon sequestrations? I don't know if that's the right word, but it seems like it. It's carbon conversion. When people talk about uh, sequestration, they normally mean pumping CO2 underground. Mm, okay. It is very similar to the hydrogen electrolysis. It uses the same hardware. The thing that okay. changes is the catalyst. So 
we leverage a lot of the innovations that come from the hydrogen electrolysis field, and especially in manufacturing electrolyzers cheaper uh, and getting better at understanding the scaling relations. If you think about this uh, as a field in chemical engineering, chemical engineers are not uh, trained in the same way on electrolysis as they are on thermocatalysis. So uh, understanding the scaling relationships for thermocatalysis is something we've done extensively, but not for electrolysis. And most of the folks that have done that work are in the hydrogen industry or the chloralkali industry. And they are not in, they have not written the, te the textbooks yet. So we rely heavily on those folks to share their knowledge. What do you think people get most confused about among the many things that they can potentially get confused about? How, where do you see folks kind of lose a thread when you're trying to explain what it is that you're trying to accomplish? I think one of the most difficult things to understand is really why does it matter to use CO2 in this way? Why can't we just bury it underground? Or, I don't know, make cement or something like that. And uh, my answer to that is that we will use all of the alternatives that we have to, to get to net zero by 2050. And that means that for every uh, different um, sector, you'll have different solution. To take enough carbon that it's worth it, we will have to bury some. But there are limited geographies where you can do that. And it's usually tied to the same places where you have oil uh, exploration. It's the same kind of formation that will trap CO2 underground. But there are other places where you cannot do that. And in the chemical industry, we have a really good opportunity to have concentrated sources of CO2 that are cheap to use. They, uh, there are a lot of processes where the CO2 already comes out purified or can be easily coupled with a uh, flue gas capture to get to high purity CO2 that is a great source of carbon to use to make products. And there are several companies coming and coming up for doing, for doing this carbon utilization, as we call it, and converting the CO2 to a value-added product. And those products uh, have different applications. So sometimes what I see people trying to do is try to pick a winner as if this is a winner-take-all. But just like chemical companies that produce a variety of products that we use every day, we will need several of those solutions to become scalable and large and produce the chemicals that we use every day in our carpets, in our clothing, in uh, our packaging. So uh, we, we need all of those things to come to fruition. Can you talk a bit about the concept of having a carbon negative product? How does that work? And kind of maybe tie it to this concept of recyclable plastics, but how can a product actually become carbon negative? Right. So we're used to seeing a carbon footprint attached to everything that we make. In our case, the main product that we're making is ethylene glycol, which is one of the pieces for making polyester. So MEG in normal production will have 1.6 tons of CO2 emitted for every ton of product that's made. 
And that comes mostly from uh, the uh, process itself as a byproduct. Um, and uh, when we do it with the renewal CO2 process, instead of taking a fossil source, we're taking CO2. So that starts with a negative number of, uh, uh, of emissions there. Uh, and the energy that we're using to do this conversion is electrical and can be renewable, which brings that the energy piece of the footprint down to a very small number. Uh, so uh, in the end, our product can sequester 1.2 tons of CO2 per ton of product, which cha changes the entire story, right? Um, instead of thinking the more product I make, the more emissions I make, the more product I make, less emissions I have, and better, better we are for the climate. So I want to just maybe push back for a second here on this. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong in thinking, because I haven't spent a lot of time really digging, digging into this thought process here, but that is true for a relative period of time. Because are we comparing it then to the sort of the status quo, the way that we're currently doing it? And thus, when everybody's using this technology, it won't, it will no longer be carbon negative. It's the carbon standard. It's still carbon negative when you do it um, because you are always taking CO2 in instead of producing it. So that, that doesn't change with scale. When you compare the overall carbon emission potential, yes, we can factor in what we're avoiding. And then when it becomes the standard, that number goes away, but we're always going to be negative because we're taking CO2 as a, a, as a feedstock and not a product. There was another piece to your question that I think it's very important to touch on. How recyclable is this, right? right. So we're making plastic that is the most recyclable plastic in the world. There are so many ways of recycling this, from the mechanical recycling that is common to depolymerizing and doing that with, uh, with enzymes that uh, allow this product to be infinitely recycled because it doesn't lose quality. And those enzymes are so cool because they allow a mixed product that has dyes and has other, uh, other materials to uh, be used as input for the recycling process. So we get the monomer back uh, and are, we're able to build the plastic with the same quality as if it was new. So uh, all of those innovations coming together, I think, really re rewrite the way we think about making products. This is amazing. I wish I had another hour to just keep asking you questions because I feel as though I'm uh, sitting in a lecture hall and learning about the chemist, the chemical industry. Uh, it really is helping me think outside of the normal box. I think that it's really important, this, uh, this very concept of what James Altucher calls idea sex, the ability to, to put ideas together and watch them produce new ideas from different um, sectors and industries. And I love, in fact, thinking about, I, I like sort of re the realization I've had of how thoughtful uh, the folks at ETV are given their portfolio about what might on the outside perhaps not look like a complementary uh, company in the portfolio, the, like the concept of Omium and Renew CO2 somehow. Uh, but when you dig down deeper, you, like you said, understand that it actually leverages the exact same underlying technology and science and scientists and 
and um, commercializ- commercialization pathways and gives optionality to, uh, to folks in, across the value chain of different ways that not only the electrolysis can be utilized, but the renewable energy and how in different sectors, in different geographical regions, you can pull from that toolkit and say, well, it might not work for this hydrogen process, but it could work for this petrochemical process. I think that's fascinating. Equally fascinating that blows my mind is this concept of infinite recyclability of the product, um, which uh, I would really encourage you to to think think about. Like, there are certain things, as we talked about in the beginning, that are hooks that people can really cap that can capture their imagination and how plastics can become infinitely recyclable in a world where we are being lied to every single day around the world about the recyclability of our existing polymers. I think that that is a message worth spreading, honestly. Are there any particular lessons through either the fundraising or the um, research and development process that you feel are core now to the entrepreneurial process that you'd want to share along? Yeah. So one of the things that I learned over this time of trying to become an entrepreneur was that we do have to stay true to who we are and how we communicate because that resonates with the people that matter. So uh, as scientists, we tend not to sell very well the concept. And what I realized with ETV is that they're not interested in hearing a sales pitch. They're interested in the substance. And I think we communicated really well on that because uh, they're trying to sift through the noise and see the potential and also the risks and how everything is interconnected. And we're trying to communicate just that with hard data with uh, and with details. So sometimes in a pitch, you're encouraged to be very abstract in general, and um, that resonates with some people, but sometimes those are not the people you're actually, uh, you actually had to, uh, to talk to. While we do change the, the way we present the message in the, for different audiences, I think it's important to stay true to your specialty because people will jive with that. The right people will. I'm curious if there are any particular books, perhaps they're entrepreneur related or just life, life books that you've recommended or have had a tremendous impact on your life and that you'd like to share along to our audience? The book that I most share with uh, friends and uh, even interns is a very recent book that I think is really practical and talks about how we should think about carbon and climate change. And it's Speed Scale by uh, it's Speed and Scale by John Doerr. And it's a fantastic book. It breaks the problem into actionable pieces and puts quantifiable targets for us to hit. And it's just such a great call to action that I absolutely love. You know, we talked earlier about how you do anything is how you do everything. I'd love to hear if you have a morning or perhaps an evening routine that informs how you structure your day. So I am an introvert that spends my day with meetings and uh, managing. So my morning routine is actually a charging period where I make my coffee and read a little bit, uh, get to learn something, drive to work, listening to a podcast. And um, in the evening, 
I do the other sort of recharging, which is usually calling a friend on my way back to work. A lot of my friends are founders, so it yeah. helps in really talking about which, what we're going through, understanding how to think about the problems, uh, taking a step back and being sort of a support system, a community um, for each other or my mentees. Sometimes I call my mentees in the evening, see how they're doing. And they're usually also scientists and learning things. So I like to recharge that way. Uh, and after that, it's usually um, making my dinner. One of my things my parents always insisted on with, were, was to have a meal with the people you love. And I have, I always cook a meal for to have with my husband. Um, we talk a little bit. He, and after that, he goes to program and I go to read some more. So we, and we do that together in a way that uh, is recharging for both of us. I'm hoping to add at least one new podcast to my already uh, bloated podcast list, but you're a podcast junkie, as I know. So I'm curious, what are the top two or three podcasts that routinely cycle through your ears? Oh, I love Hidden Brain and it's a, mm -hmm. uh, an amazing one. And the other one that I always go to is Satellite Sisters, which is, it's a podcast by five sisters who are of older age. And they remind me a little bit of my friends. Uh, and it's great to, uh, they're great role models of how to stay uh, informed, stay, uh, stay healthy. And uh, it's very refreshing. That's beautiful. Karen, where, if folks are so inclined, would they be able to best uh, find you and engage with you? Um, You're LinkedIn. introverted, so where would you, where would you send them? LinkedIn. Yes, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to always schedule a call and one of those evening calls. I love it. Well, as we wrap up, we often look into our crystal ball out to 2030 or 2050, as you said. We got to decarbonize by 2050. What do you believe is the linchpin? problem that we need to solve to really get us to a decarbonized uh, grid or decarbonized uh, world by 2050? I think it's something we're working very hard on, and it is to reduce friction in innovation. Hmm. So a few years ago, I used to hear, we, uh, everyone needs to come to the table to help solve the problem. We are coming to the table. Everyone is. The industry folks, the academic folks, folks the government, um, the uh, entrepreneurs, and we're building those structures that allow for faster collaboration, uh, for more exchange of information, and the frameworks that uh, that remove the barriers for that to happen faster. So I think this is actually what's going to cause the biggest difference in a lot of small problems that need to be tackled one by one. But like you go to a company uh, to, uh, as a startup and you need to work on a contract. Some that used to take two years. Now it's a lot faster because they're preparing for that uh, and creating templates that make that, that interaction faster. Instead of just waiting for someone to come along, they have outreach now. The Breakthrough Energy Fellowship is another great example of reducing friction and helping educate the founders on how to run a company instead of kind of letting them figure out because it's a process. So you might as well educate people on what the process is. So a lot of those, those things are happening and 
they are amazing to see. Karin Calvino is the co-founder and CTO of Renew CO2. And I have so thoroughly enjoyed the chemistry lessons that we've received today. I say lessons because we've talked about not just polymers, catalysts, and monomers, but also interpersonal chemistry. And I've truly enjoyed learning from you today. Karin, thanks for joining us on Suncast. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Karin. I, for one, am smarter today because of you in my life. 90 minutes ago, I did not know what catalysis was or many different areas of how my brain expanded over the last hour and a half of conversation that we've just enjoyed. So I want to say thank you for expanding our minds in the Suncast tribe. How about you, Solar Warrior? Did you learn anything in today's journey? What specifically? I'd love to hear from you, of course, and uh, you can reach out to both Karin and I and learn more about the different resources that she provided and all of the different ways that you can connect with us at the show notes page by going over to mysuncast.com, clicking on the episodes button. Of course, there are so many other ways that you can connect with and contribute to the Suncast tribe, like joining our community or learning ways to partner with us like our friends at SunGrow and Trina and many other companies who've come alongside to help make this content free to you each and every week. I'm so grateful that you've taken time and attention from your day, and I hope that you've leveled up as a result. Please take some time, go to mysuncast.com and learn more about ways that you can lean in to our community and our collective action. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.